Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, Rick already gave me uh, an introduction. Yes, my name is Mark McKay. Uh, I've been here at Gospel Community Church for almost two years now, um, and I've been thankful for the community here. It's been a true blessing to my life, and I'm grateful to be with you here today. And I'm, I'm truly privileged to be here and to be uh, speaking with you about the Word of God. And I hope that the Word of God is the thing that uh, you leave with here and, and not my words. Um, and first, let me just say that beyond the Spirit of God, I, I am um, I'm deeply indebted to those godly men who have come, come before me. Uh, even seeing my brother up there, I'm proud. Like, uh, that, that, that makes me proud. And I think of my brother and my dad and my grandfather who have all been faithful to teach me the ways of God, and I am seeking to do the same. So beyond the Spirit of God and those men, um, I'm just thankful to be here before you uh, because without them, I would not be able to be able to share the truths um, of God's Word today. So... Today we're going to be finishing and concluding Ecclesiastes, which is an amazing book. If you haven't been with us, um, there's really just too much ground to cover now at this point, but you're going to get to hear the end of the matter today. So an introduction, uh, a brief story. I, I love feel-good stories. I am one that's easily wrapped up and however cheesy, um, but feel-good movie. Uh, and true confessions here, um, even the holiday, maybe made-for-TV Hallmark movie, that can, that can get me, I'm going to be honest. Uh, and, and why? I, it's because I love to feel good, and, and who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? Even when our lives might not feel so good, we can vicariously live through other people's stories, even in the movies, and we can forget about the troubles of our lives. The reality of life is hard, and it's full of troubles. And we are all looking for solutions, but, but not just an escape as it is to watch a movie. We're looking for real solutions. So what might be a real-life example? Uh, one only has to watch the evening world news once to notice that it is full of real life and bad and troubling news. But after barraging you with bad news in a half-an-hour segment, they will always end with a broadcast with a very short, warm and fuzzy, feel-good moment. The story that empowers man and gives hope for lasting change in our world. And this is in many ways what the whole discourse of Ecclesiastes is like, yet with a much different conclusion. Ecclesiastes is seemingly the quintessential feel-bad story we all hear in the news daily. The author of Ecclesiastes gives us the troublesome headline at the beginning vanity of vanities, and expends much thought, great detail, and artistry in the narrative of all the comings and goings of man under the sun, and he finds it utterly futile and void of any lasting pleasure and worth. And then at the very end, he offers us two short sentences meant to lead us towards not the power of man, but the eternal power of God. And not simply a glimmer of hope for lasting change, but a true hope for everlasting change. So if there's one thing I want you to remember this morning, it's this, that the fear of God leads to everlasting change. And you might say, well, uh, change of what? And I would say it in, in two statements. God changes what is pointless into something that is eternally meaningful. And two, God changes what is certain death 
into everlasting life. So let us then for the final time, draw our collective and individual minds, emotions, and wills into this great thought experiment of the preacher, and finally hear how he concludes the matter. But in order to do, to do this and, and to feel the gravity of his final persuasive blow in this last chapter, we must first begin again at the beginning and review the preacher's careful and delightful words of truth. So from the outset of the book, after a brief introduction of the author and the third person, the preacher wastes no time as he states and frames his big claim. He says this in verse 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And you can hear the zeal in his voice. And he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Almost as if he's exasperated. This is verse one of the whole book, by the way. So just to recall our minds at, at, at the author's thesis here, he uses the word hevel in the Greek, which has a broad range of meaning. Uh, in our text today uh, from the ESV, we see vanity as its translation, which kind of conjures this idea of something that's on the surface, right? Um, something that's not long-lasting. It's also translated meaningless, in some places translated futile, which might mean pointless or incapable of producing any useful result. Or even in some cases, it's translated absurd, which might mean wildly unreasonable, illogical, inappropriate. So the author says that, all of life under the sun, everything about man's comings and goings under the sun is hevel. And literally, the word means breath or wind. So you might have the idea of, think about smoke or vapor. You can see it. It's real. Sometimes you can even smell it. You can reach out and you can actually touch it. And then when you try to grab it, it slips through your fingers, descends into the air, and disappears. And that's what the author is saying. He's saying everything about humanity, everything about life under the sun is hevel. Everything is here now and then gone in the next instant. And so he frames his whole argument saying everything clearly under the sun being a very important phrase that he uses almost equally as much as the word vanity. Everything under the sun is hevel. So the backdrop of this whole book is actually the creation story. God, the creator of the universe, created man and a place for him to live. And that place had a command. You are free to eat, this is from Genesis 2, of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so what happens next in this story? Man decides to sin by dishonoring the command of God. And they ate of the tree anyway. So God exiled them from his presence, cursed all of creation around them. He banished them to live under the sun, cursed until death. And this is the very context of the preacher's whole argument, a discourse on the comings and goings of man under the sun, and all is found to be hevel. But let me remind you that he lovingly throughout the text does not forget to mention God throughout the whole book. He constantly is coming back to God as the giver. So this is a really bold claim that he's making, right? And here I believe as, as readers, if we're engaging with the text, uh, we would absolutely, and without hesitation to such a claim, we would, we, we would say, hold on. No way. That's not possible. We would, if we're all being honest with ourselves, I, I think that if not maybe externally, internally we would be telling ourselves that surely there are things that I do are of meaning and purpose. 
He must be mad. What an absurd and, and overreaching thing to say. I believe this is the author's intent, though, to get our minds searching every possibility of life under the sun to which we have seen and experienced to find out something that is of worth in our own lives. He prods us to consider all of life's intimate details. And he has only said but two thoughts still in the whole text. One must wonder then, well, how qualified is the author to speak on such a vast measure? How can he really know about all of life under the sun anyways? He doesn't know my life. Well, the preacher considered this rebuttal and answered it as well. In the very beginning of the text, he says, so if we call our attention to who the preacher is, he's a king, it tells us. And he's a wise king. In fact, he's the wisest and wealthiest king, surpassing all who came before him. If you want to know the breadth and range of possibilities and experiences that life has to offer, truly, this is the man to listen to. But what of us? Surely our experience is unique and worth considering, right? Well, the preacher addresses this in the very first poem of the book. So if we consider our own lives and experiences against his argument for a moment, as I believe he intends for us to do, what will we find? And I think we will find that all of the necessary and pleasurable things in life that we experience, whether it's just sleeping, eating, working, or playing in life, eventually end each day, and our desires for those same things return again. And what may seem new the next time, that is, the next tasty meal or the next new job, or the next fun adventure or activity, is simply the same desire just dressed up in a new outfit. So he says, the experience of life is common to all of us under the sun. It may look different in each of our different contexts, but truly, it is the same for all of us. So this is what I believe the author means when he says in the first poem, there is nothing new under the sun. I do not think he's stating that man is not creative or inventive. I think he's simply stating that man's ways are as nature's ways. They are circular. As the river runs into the seas, but they are never filled, so all of our senses cannot be satisfied. Even as fashion trends are changing by the season and the year, yet somehow trends always seem to return again, but perhaps with a modern flair. A quote I believe here is helpful. It's by Jean-Baptiste Carr, who's a French satirical writer the early 1800s, and he notes the same thing. He says this, the more things change, the more things turn out to be the same. That is to say that man's history turns back on itself again and again, despite its appearances. So I think the, the, the author of the book and the preacher here is saying, you might think you're special, but you're not. Your experience is the same as all of humanity. It is hevel under the sun. So he completes his thesis argument in this very first poem, and he gains the ear of the reader by quieting his rebuttals. And he leaves us with this. As commentator Aiken puts it well, he says the preacher leaves us with this, a world endlessly busy and hopelessly inconclusive. So before we get to chapter 12, let's just quickly walk through and sort of recapture some of the arguments that the preacher's saying through the whole book. And I know this is sort of belaboring, again, what we've already gone through, but I believe it's important for us to understand chapter 12. So let's recapture the arguments. So what first began as sort of these broad analogies about nature, now moves on to personal experience of the preacher. Hence the change of voice. What was the third person now is the first person. He said, I'm going to tell you about me, my life, what I've experienced. 
So he begins by telling us about pleasure. And pleasure needs no introduction for us. It feels good. It sounds good. It is good. But the preacher says it's only for a moment. And it could be for us, as, as indeed it is for the preacher, it could be enjoying good wine or, or building things and making things. It could even be caring for the land, planting gardens, enjoying the, the fruits of that. It could be companionship or friendship or, or love or people working for you in a business. It could be music that you desire and love, find pleasure in. It could be money. It could be sex. I think in the Pacific Northwest, I see pleasure most predominantly in our culture, the, the great pleasure of freedom. The ultimate pleasure of freedom is to do whatever it is that you wish because it feels right to you. And not simply that, but it is your right to do those things, our culture says. Even in Christian culture, we do this too, if we're honest. We stand so strong on our principles, to, principles of freedom to drink a beer or a glass of wine or smoke that cigar or do that thing, whatever it is, because those things are rightly ours to enjoy. But perhaps at times we're missing the point that these pleasures are temporal and not ultimate and they are not to be honored above God. So the preacher concludes None of these pleasures will last. You might get what you wanted, but you will, not, you, you will not want to keep it when you get it. And what you can see and touch and taste now will be gone in an instant, and you cannot keep it in death. So he moves on and says, well, perhaps it's not, not uh, all the things that I've done for pleasure's sake, for truly who could do more for pleasure than a king? But perhaps it's how I've done it. So he tries wisdom. And he tries folly and madness. Says, well, I'm, I'm going to try that out and see how it works for me. Um, and he does conclude that wisdom is better than folly. To walk in the light is better than to walk in the dark. But at the end of the day, both will die. And so after these two arguments, he, he makes sure to tell us that God is the true giver of all pleasure. And he is the satisfaction. And of wisdom, he notes that God is the source of all wisdom. And I think 1 Corinthians says it well for us. Chapter 3, verse 18, you don't need to turn there. But it says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So he moves on and says, well, what about work? What about the things that I do? Um, and I, I think just a real quick example, I think of all the sports and athletes that we have going on now. What happens when uh, some great athlete, it could be Tom Brady maybe, who, who wins the, the, the title, wins the championship? What is their response after that? They, they've achieved the glory of all of their work. And what do they say to the reporters in interviews about what they'll do next, besides going to Disneyland, that is? They say, I want another one. I want it again. And I think that kind of sums up our work for ourselves. That even when we get and achieve, we can't keep it and we want more. It does not satisfy. But he notes that God is the giver of our work. And he is the one that brings joy in it. 
And then he moves on to social matters. He moves on to justice and politics and, and those who are in power. And he says that wickedness is found both in the just places and the righteous places. The wicked act wickedly and prolong their life. And, and, and the righteous act righteously and, and they lose their life early. What's up with that? That's absurd. How could that be? But he says, well, both alike will die. They will be as beasts and they will return to the dust. And he says of those in power, he says that those in power are oppressing those who are weak. And those in power are wicked and they're doing nothing to comfort those who are weak. That's hevel, that's absurd. Think in your own life. Think about politics today. I mean, you, you may stand, uh, I'm sure in this room we have a lot of varying stances on politics. But we think about those in power throughout our lives, whether it's in relation to maybe government and immigration practices. Maybe it's related to the police and the brutality that we see. Maybe it's even pastors. Often in the news we see pastors in their sexual harassment of children. What's up with that? Maybe it's your boss at work who's sexually harassing his, his uh, workers. And maybe, it, maybe it's in regards to promotional discrimination. Maybe it's parents and husbands and physical and emotional abuse. The author says that these things are wicked and they're hevel. They're absurd. They don't make any sense. And they're saddening. He even says that it is better for the person who has never lived at all than it is for those who have lived and seen that trouble. And lastly, he, even to sort of conclude the summation of his arguments, he, he even says that religious ritual is meaningless. He says that God will not be mocked with your vows and your empty words and your empty promises and your empty offerings. God should not be mocked. He should be feared. And just to read a passage out of Romans, I think sort of sums this up for us well. It's out of Romans 1. He says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires and of their hearts to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And I think that sums up the book well for us that this creator-creature distinction that we would worship the things that God has created over the creator himself. So we will move into chapter 12 here and move through it fairly quickly. But I want to read for you three statements that are fear statements that I believe help us feel the weight of the argument. Number one, I fear that if I do not love myself, there would be no one to love me quite so well as I do. And besides, who is worthy to be loved more than me? 
Number two, I fear that no matter how much I give to others, it will never be enough to bring lasting joy and love to their lives or mine. So I'm not sure if I should give it at all. And will anyone remember me for it anyhow? And number three, I fear that death is the end and there is nothing beyond. So with that, we jump into chapter 12. And we should feel heavy <laughs> at this point. And chapter 12 is the ultimate climactic moment of this whole book. That's gut-wrenching and hard to hear. It is the finality of life under the sun. It is death. So let's walk through this poem together. We will walk through it, and then we will read it together, um, because these are really hard words to understand. I don't think we should demand of a poet a direct one-to-one translation of of what all the images he's saying. Um, So let us walk through it together. We'll read it, and hopefully it will impact us. So it says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. So we're talking about this, the celestial bodies are darkened. And this is, this is apocalyptic imagery. This is end of times imagery. We, we need look no farther than the movies to know that when the sun goes dark and the moon goes dark, there's some sort of ominous, like death looming. Um, and I think that's what it's referring to here. And possibly it's also referring to just eyesight. We're talking about old age and death here, the last moments, the waning moments of life. Possibly it's even talking about mental capacity fading. And the clouds return after the rain. This could possibly refer to the lingering or returning consequences of poor choices from one's youth. Or perhaps a woe that will not cease or go away. It could be also referring to one's mental capacity fading, just that our memories or our memory uh, is not so good anymore. I recall my, my grandmother who, who struggled with Alzheimer's. Um, seeing her degrade, her mental capacity degrade, and, and remembering the moment when she just couldn't remember my name anymore. Um, it's a woeful and sorrowful moment. Moving forward, the keepers of the house tremble. Now, what keeps the house? What allows you to do work to keep the house? Your hands, your feet, your appendages. The keepers of the house tremble. A house in decline requires work. So it may refer to those parts of our bodies that, that do the work. Our hands and our feet and appendages start to grow weak and shake and tremble. The strong men are bent. Our major muscles are failing us and we're hunched over. We can no longer stand aright. The grinders cease because the strong men are few. This, I find this actually quite comical. It likely refers to our teeth. The grinders, they cease. So maybe we don't have so many anymore, right? Maybe chewing is hard. It says the windows are dimmed. I I think this is just talking about our eyesight failing. And the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding fades. Our hearing is failing. I think of when I visited New York City, it was was in the summer, it was warm. And so we slept with the, the windows open. And so in the morning, man, honking horns, you can hear everything. And it's like, whoa, this is loud. And I, I think what this is saying is that when you're old, opening the window wouldn't be a problem anymore. That door is shut. That window is closed. And I think this is such a beautiful irony that happens next. It says one, one rises early at the sound of a bird, and yet all the music grows faint. 
as your hearing decreases, yet somehow you still wake up super, super early to the, the birds chirping and are not able to rest, and you still can't hear the beautiful songs that are played. Moving quickly along, we, we see um, they're afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Simply, it could just be they're afraid of falling or dangers in the, dangers in the streets the, the, when they travel, that, that it's hard on their body is jostling around. And here's a good one, the almond tree blossoms. This could just refer to white hair in old age. If you look at the, at the blossom of an almond tree, um, most often they're, they're stark white, and as they grow to the center, they grow to a pink. I think it's a beautiful picture of our old age, those uh, white hair growing into the, the baldness of our pink scalp. And the grasshopper drags himself along. Think about a grasshopper, super light, nimble, can spring away in an instant, and yet he is dragging his belly on the ground because he no longer has that ability. Desire fails, or as some translations say, the caperberry has no effect. Now, the caperberry was known as an aphrodisiac, so this is, this is referring to sexual desire. And at the end of life, sexual desire is gone. It says man is going to his eternal home, and it ends with two final images. It says the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. This is most likely referring to a precious lampstand, something that is made of precious metals. It's depicting something beautiful and fragile as life is that will fall and break if just a single link in the chain is broken. And that light will then go out. It says the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. This is a depiction of the, a deserted well, depicting a uh, in a contrasting way, something so basic and regular, it's representing a daily life giving task of drawing water, yet the wheel and the pitcher are broken. And these last two images and metaphors are cast for us, and they are a beautiful end to this terrible death. So let me read that for us once more, just to hear it again. Remember also your creator in the days from your youth, before the evil days and the years draw near of what you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The seemingly most eternal run-on sentence that leaves us breathless, both in its content and as a reader. So the end of the argument is here. He, he moves to the third person, and we'll finish this quickly. Let me read it for us, starting in verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. So the author steps back into the third person and says, hey, these, these sayings are, are worthwhile for your thought and consideration. Why? Because they're true. They're beautifully arranged, provoking us to think. And they're like goads. What's a goad? A goad is basically just a long pointy stick that shepherds would use, people would use for um, cattle and livestock to poke them and move them into action and move them into action in the correct way. So these wise sayings should poke us, they should sting, and they should keep us on course, and they should keep us moving. But also, they are like firmly fixed nails. They are something that keeps us grounded and steadied in the truth. I think we have a beautiful picture when it says they are given by one shepherd. It concludes and says, these words and this whole discussion about life on the sun, it's given by God himself, the shepherd. I think it's a beautiful contrast to how chapter 12 opens with God as the creator, God is the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, and yet he is the shepherd. He doesn't just set the world in motion and leave it to go awry. He is intimately involved in what's going on, and he sees it, and he accounts for every deed, as the last verse will tell us. He knows you. He knows what's going on. And he also gives a warning. He says, be wary of much study beyond this. If you feel unsatisfied with that discourse and you feel like you're still special, it's going to make you weary because you're going to keep going on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and it's never going to end. It will just make you tired. So verse 13, finally the end of the matter. This is the great sort of, we made it. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So if God cares so much to notice every detail of life, nothing goes unnoticed or unassessed, life must be meaningful and important. The things we do must be meaningful and important. But they're meaningful and important and with eternal value, not just here and now under the sun. So what does it mean to fear God? It means to put him in his proper place and put us in our proper place and to put all of our hopes and dreams and agendas in their proper place. This is wise living. So, If we seek to honor God in all that we do and try to keep his commandments, what will we find as Adam and Eve found in the garden? We can't do it. It's not going to work out. And in many ways, this is where the author leaves us. But that's not where I'm going to leave you today. Thankfully, we are living in a time that is after Jesus. And even in the garden, there's a poem that comes after they sinned, and God promises to bring someone who would crush the head of the serpent who would deliver his people from evil. And now we get to look back and also see that that has happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as opposed to the news broadcast we talked about in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus is not simply one piece of good news amongst the host of bad news in life. It is the permanent circumstance by which every aspect of life is changed. The gospel is the very power of God, the Almighty at work for salvation. God saw the curse of man under the sun and chose to give up his heavenly dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ, to come down and live among us, to experience the temptation of living 
living for ourselves and other created things in the world that is full of evil. And he endured his whole life fearing God and obeying his commands perfectly by honoring him for every single thing in his life. Even honoring him in the face of the greatest injustice of all history. When humanity put him, an innocent man, to death. When everything he did was true and righteous. He received upon himself the entirety of the wrath of God on our behalf. You see, Jesus in his humanity endured and can relate with us in all of our comings and goings under the sun. He intimately understands our needs, and in this way, he may comfort us as our one true shepherd. But Jesus also in his divinity was able to live perfectly honoring God in this, his infinite nature was able to pay the infinite penalty due us for our actions that matter into eternity. You see, through Jesus, the desperate cry of hevel, hevel, everything is hevel, is changed into an everlasting purpose and joy unto God's glory that cries, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And also the curse of eternal death and exile from God's presence, as we saw in Genesis 3, is now changed into everlasting life lived in God's midst. John 3.16, the famous verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, will not die, but will have everlasting life. So today, I, I believe the preacher prods us to make haste and says, Do not wait till you're any older. Do not wait any longer. Fear God and recognize that Jesus is the only way to fulfill his commands. God made a way to salvation through Jesus Christ. And all of God's word speaks to that. So the question is today, will you be wise as it speaks of in Ecclesiastes and receive this rebuke from God and fear him? Or will you be the fool who only wants to listen to the song of fools? Fearing God leads to everlasting change that is permanent. And Jesus Christ guarantees our permanent circumstance. Let's pray. God, I'm humbled by um, your word. I'm humbled by the experience of, of bringing your word to others. And to be honest with you, I feel like my words just fall short constantly. But we trust that your word is holy and good and works miracles. And I, I ask that you would allow our hearts to fear and tremble before you today and realize that your commands are good and we cannot keep them and that Jesus is the only one who could keep them on our behalf. Amen.